Let's pray. Oh, dear Lord God, thank you for the great Saint Clive Staples. Thank you, Lord, for his baptized imagination and the way he so prolifically wrote and drew us into other worlds in order to draw us closer to you. And we ask now that as we examine his work, the Chronicles of Narnia, we ask that you would draw us closer to you, that you would reveal to us deep truths about who you are and what you desire for us. So we ask all of this for your glory and, our, and for our benefit in the strong name of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. So, um, Clive Staples, as you know, was um, 1898 to uh, 1963, and he is, as I said, one of the great saints, I think. Um, just it, it, one of his commentators wrote that he, or biographers wrote that he was probably the most read man in England in his age. He knew all of the great literature. And um, so let me just preface this whole class by saying the Chronicles of Narnia comes out of that immense wealth of his own learning, his own knowledge, and then his imagination that was sparked by everything that he read. Um, so these books, the Chronicles of Narnia, are incredibly important to me. They, I would say that they, quote, baptized my imagination at a very young age. And that phrase, baptism of the imagination, is something that Lewis used himself when he talked about George MacDonald's work. He picked up the Fantasties by George MacDonald, which is one of his fairy stories, when he was a young man, still an atheist, before he'd come to faith. And as he read this wonderful, imaginative work, he was drawn in. He was something um, drew him. He began to have a longing for some of the things that George MacDonald was writing about. And he writes later on that George MacDonald's work quote, baptized his imagination. So we can thank goodness for that because we see the fruit of that in uh, Lewis's own writing. So these books are important to me. They baptized my imagination at a very young age, and I would even say they formed me theologically, that a lot of my own, um, I didn't know it at the time, I was too young to know what theology even was, but they shaped me and formed me so that then when I began reading scripture on my own, I would say, oh, that's just like in the Chronicles of Narnia, <laughs> rather than, oh, the Chronicles of Narnia are just like in scripture. Um, and there is, there is a latent family legend that, um, that around the age that I was very young, I think I was probably two or three, and I have an older brother and sister, and so they were roughly four and six at the time, or you know, maybe five and seven. And my parents were reading aloud the Chronicles of Narnia, as they did at least three times during my childhood. They read aloud the whole seven books from beginning to end. And um, I was very small, just at that age when, as they say in large families, or about little ones, well, first of all, about large families, you get drawn along when you're the third child. <laughs> so even though it was way beyond my learning level, I was still involved in hearing the Chronicles of Narnia read aloud. And then um, secondly, I always think of little ones in my own family now that suddenly there's this point where, um, as we say in our family, it talks. This little silent being has suddenly started to talk. And so one of my it talks moments was that we had been reading the Chronicles of Narnia every night after dinner. And for some reason, there was a break in the routine and we weren't going straight to reading just like I had come to expect. And so I started to say, mus, mus, which was my word for mouse. 
because one of my favorite characters was the character of Reapy Cheap, and that was my way of asking, aren't we going to read tonight? So um, as you can see, it was right in there from a very, very early age. So um, these books, though, I would say are not just for children. So you might ask, well, Deborah, why are we doing this as an adult? Ed? This is an adult Sunday school class. But um, they're not just for children. In fact, these books influence us all very subtly. I would even say one of the best ways to experience them is to do the reverse of what was done in my childhood, to read them aloud to a child in your life or just to read them silently for yourself. And um, Lewis is a big fan of this idea, and he maintains that his books are not just for children, but rather for the childlike. He says, when I was 10, I read fairy stories in secret and would have been ashamed if I had been found doing so. Now that I am 50, I read them openly. When I became a man, I put away childish things, including the fear of childishness and the desire to be very grown up. That's from 1 Corinthians 13 that he references. Um, the fear of childishness often keeps us from doing many delightful things um, that will enrich us. So I also quote um, Jesus' words to his disciples, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, there are so, so many ways to unpack that, unpack that phrase, but I would say that one way is to say that uh, we can enter in, uh, enter into faith through our imaginations. And, um, and Lewis certainly does that quite well. So um, how many in this room have read the Chronicles of Narnia? Let's see a show of hands. Oh, wow. Lots. How many have seen the recent movies by Walden? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. How many like the recent movies by Walden? I know, I'm iffy on it. I have strong opinions about everything. So I'm only showing one clip from that movie, and it's because I think it's the very best part of the whole movie. I could leave all the CGI, but give me this one clip, and it's worth it. Um, so as many know, as you all know, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe starts with the four Pevensey children. They've gone out into the country from London because of the air raids. So for safety, a lot of the children went out. They end up at Professor Kirk's country home, which is this rambling old mansion. You think it's a mansion. And as they're escaping from the watchful eye of the housekeeper, well, first of all, Lucy has gone in first. She, her curiosity led her into the wardrobe. And she went in, and of course, she meets, um, as we know, she meets the fawn tumness. Um, and just an aside, I've I'm such a fan of the of the line drawings that were a part of the original editions of the books. So these are uh, because partly, and this is partly why I don't like the movies. The movies, and there's a quote somewhere out there to describe this, but I didn't track it down. The movies do everything for you. The movies don't draw you in and ask your imagination to um, make up the difference between the description that's being given you and all of the details. Um, we, when we read Lewis's books, we're brought a little way in, say, let's say we're brought a little way into the wardrobe, but then we're asked to come a little further and our imaginations become active as we fill in the gaps and the blanks. And the film doesn't allow that, does it? The film just gives you 
everything on a platter and says, eat this. Um, and you don't get to um, be creative in your own imagination. But Pauline Bain's illustrations, they actually, um, they're evocative, aren't they? They give you a little bit, but they draw you in so that you would see more. So as I was starting to say, Lucy um, goes into the wardrobe. She meets with Tumnus, the fawn, um, and they have tea. And she learns about um, she learns about uh, Narnia and that Narnia is a place where it's always winter but never Christmas. And I think that is C.S. Lewis's great way of describing the world um, post-fall and pre-salvation. Um, the shadow lands, as he calls it elsewhere, this land where everything is not as it should be, or all is not as it should be, even though there are some wonderful things. Um, and so there's that sense of expectation and longing, the waiting for salvation that you see in Narnia leading up to the advent of Aslan. Um, so Lucy comes back out, and um, her her brother, Edmund, the youngest one, is the one of her three siblings who makes fun of her the most for what she's been talking about, about what she um, experienced in there. And they, none of them believe her. Um, what an interesting analogy for faith, for the life of faith, having gone in a little bit, having experienced the mercies of God, and calling back to others and saying, come along, come with me, come and see this wonderful thing that I now know and others are reluctant. Um, so there's that great analogy as well. Edmund follows her in the second time she goes in, um, and he, of course, encounters um, he encounters uh, the White Witch. And this is the only little bit I'm going to show you because it's so good. Some of you might know I really like Tilda Swinton. She's a really good actress, and she makes up for the CGI, which I dislike. Which, yeah, absolutely. Let's do that. Thank you. Let me turn this one off too. Oh, uh, sure. This might help too. Oh, wait. Hold on. That's not working. Hmm. I'm not sure why the um, mirror image. Okay, thanks. Yeah, it was the turning off the lamp. There you go. It should be coming up right now. The tech guys all know to come to my class to help me out. Oh, <laughs> um, uh, sorry. I would say the more technologically advanced. There we go. Thank you. Okay, great. Yeah, that works. That works very much. So, um, so let's see if I can find my mouse. There it is. Um, got it. Sorry, it's not bigger. Dominion? 
I'm not sure. I, I was just following my sister. How many? Four. Lucy's the only one that's been here before. <coughs> she said she met some form called Tumnus. Patron Susan didn't believe her. I didn't either. <coughs> you look so Is that it? Beyond these woods, she knows to hear My absence is right between He'd love it there, and it has whole rooms simply stuffed on her tonight. Couldn't I have this all now? No! So as you can see, um, so, yeah, can you get it back up? Thank you. Um, one of the things that, that they've said, that Lewis has even said about his own writing is that he has much easier time portraying characters that are evil than characters that are good because he just imagines himself like worse. He just takes his own faults and carries them out to their logical conclusions, his own sins, and makes them more extreme. Whereas to imagine something, a character better, like for example, to imagine Aslan 
is so much harder because we know so much less about that. Um, and it's true in that movie as well. I think that's why that's one of my favorite scenes because they do such a good job. The director and the designer and Tilda Swinton all do an incredible job of portraying the White Witch. But when they get to Aslan, I find it very unfortunate. There's nothing so wonderful as Aslan in the books. And then you see this mechanical talking lion and you just think, it's not like that. Aslan is not like that. So um, so I think it's true about this movie as well. It's much harder to portray the goodness and the greatness of God, in fact. Second thing about this scene is that we see the beginning of the theme of temptation in Lewis's books. And this theme is a thread that runs throughout each of the seven books. And here we see that um, this treachery of sin, of Edmund's sin, begins when the witch appeals, first of all, to his um, his physical desires, his desire for Turkish delight, and you see his mania about that. And then also um, she appeals to his own arrogance and his own sense of being a squashed upon third child. Um, and that plays, she plays that up more and more. His first act of, of betrayal begins when he goes back. He and Lucy go back and they see um, she, she comes out and she says, now you'll tell the others, you'll see, you, you've seen. And his first act of betrayal of his siblings is when he um, denies what he's seen. And he continues to say that she is lying and making it up. And she's crushed by that. Of course, his betrayal continues in when he tries to turn Peter to his side. They're on their way to the beaver's house. Then when they get to the beaver's house, he escapes and goes to the white witch and tells her where they are, not realizing that she will come and try to kill them. And so, of course, we see in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe um, the, the event of Aslan's own vicarious death for Edmund. There is a swap. Um, Edmund has come over to the camp of the lion once the other three meet up with Aslan. And um, the queen comes in, or the witch comes in, and she says that, um, that every traitor belongs to me as my lawful prey. And for every treachery, I have a right to kill. So interesting that Lewis literally says that she is citing the law with a capital L. <coughs> that law which condemns us in our world when we sin. Um, and every one of us sins and is condemned by the law. And so she's seen as she's coming to um, collect and Aslan, of course, draws her aside and makes a bargain with her that he will give himself up for death in Edmund's place. And so those words about, um, about us in Scripture um, through in Jesus Christ as our vicarious atoning sacrifice are the same about Aslan in relation to Edmund. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And so um, we find that um, when Aslan is raised from the dead, well, first of all, there are so many parallels between Aslan's death and Jesus' own death that um, time does not allow me to tell them all. But here's just a little glimpse. The women, uh, Susan and Lucy, follow Aslan. And they even say, almost echoing God's spell, where are you going? Can we come with you with great sorrow? And he goes, he walks with great sorrow. There's a road to the stone table um, and the women are weeping. And there Aslan is bound, mocked and killed by the queen's um, 
uh, entourage. And she just before she kills him, she says, despair and die. Know that now that you are dead, I will have them all to myself. And you thought you were saving them by doing this, but you're not saving them. And as much as we, we know that Jesus Christ had the faith that um, that that he was obeying his father and that his father would um, come through for him. He, he believes in the goodness of his father and in the father's plan and his will. And yet being human, uh, you, I think he really did, you know, there was part of him that it was an act of faith on Jesus's part to go to the cross. And we see that with Aslan too. It's an act of faith to die. When the table cracks, in the dead of the morning, the, dawn, the dark just before dawn, we hear Lucy lament like Mary Magdalene, what are they doing to him now? And when Ashland appears, risen from the dead, he says that the witch did not know that though there is a deep magic, the law, there is a deeper magic still, the gospel. And that it's that deeper magic that has raised Jesus from the dead, um, raised Ashland from the dead. Oops. I switched. Um, and so one of the things I love about why fairy tales work, and Lewis says this, he says that um, recovery in Tolkien's sense, he uses this word recovery to describe it. Recovery in Tolkien's sense of the term is a key to the chronicles as fairy tales. The stories take readers out of the primary world, this world, and allow them to experience a secondary world that changes their outlook so that as they re-enter the primary world, they see new things in it and see old things in fresh ways. Having read the Chronicles of Narnia, especially The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we turn a fresh eye on Scripture and on the truths of Scripture, and we understand them in a new way with renewed vigor and zeal. So uh, hold on to your hat, because I'm just going to go through the next five books. Um, (laughs) That was lots of time on the first book, and now we're going to dip into the others. My thesis is essentially that the next books, and that includes Prince Caspian, and then The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, um, The Silver Chair, and The Horse and His Boy. I'll count those four. I'll go into The Magician's Nephew a little bit more in depth. But I think that those four books in particular portray the Christian life, and that in them you see Lewis using um, biblical themes. He's expounding the way of discipleship, and even the adventure of what it is to follow Jesus. You see a strong sense of morality throughout his books that's just permeated through them. Um, And some people even say, some people uh, accuse him of being preachy and saying that he's he's too obvious in the way he tells us what to do. But um, I love this author who says that instead the stories present proper behavior and values objectively which is something so rare for us in our culture. He presents them objectively as something readers already know perfectly well. They do not instruct, they remind, thus following the maxim of Samuel Johnson, the 18th century moralist whom Lewis admired greatly. Men are more frequently required to be reminded, or men more frequently require to be reminded than informed. I love that because it appeals to our own pride as fallen human beings. I know that already. Oh no, we're just reminding you. This is the, this is the norm. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, I, I know that already. Oh yeah, we're, I'm getting a refresher. And so these books give a little refresher. Um, 
And you see this in Prince Caspian. Okay, so in Prince Caspian, the Pevensies come back and they find themselves a thousand years later on the island where their castle had been. And suddenly um, they have to come and rescue Prince Caspian um, because he has, it's very Hamlet-esque. He has been, his throne is usurped by his uncle who has killed his father. And um, there, there's no room for the old Narnian truths, the talking beasts and the magic that's there. And so they have to reclaim Narnia for the Narnians. And so the Pevensies come in and help them. Um, and there is this uh, little portrait of faith where only Lucy can once again, once again, she's the forerunner of faith. Only she can see Aslan um, and she has to uh, draw the others in to follow her as she follows Aslan, even though they cannot see Aslan. I think we all probably have someone in our life that we're saying, no, really, it's true. Come along, come along and believe with me. Um, the theme of temptation comes up in um, the the counselors. Caspian's counselors uh, have a traitor among them, and he is encouraging them to call up the ghost of the White Witch to support Caspian's cause. So there's this moment where everything hangs in the balance, and they must decide what to do. That same theme of temptation comes through in um, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which perhaps is like a modern or Lewis's own fairy tale version of the Odyssey. There, Caspian um, has um, is about to embark on this journey to recover the lords that served his father, who are lost. Um, so we see this temptation on this one island where they find themselves um, surrounded. Oh, here's Prince Caspian. Look, there it is. Um, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the three children. So this time it's Lucy and Edmund, and they're horrible. And I love how um, Lewis so aptly uses the British word beastly to describe human sin. Their beastly cousin Eustace, who's just irritable and um, arrogant and a, a real problem throughout the whole book. They are drawn in through this picture of the Dawn Treader and they're drawn it back into Narnia. And there they help Caspian find on this great voyage. Um, there we see Lucy tempted and she succumbs in part, which is good to know she's not perfect. Um, she succumbs while reading the magici magician's book on the island of the Duffelpuds. Um, also, there is this amazing portrait in this book of that shows just um, completely the total passivity of our own justification and sanctification. There... Um, Eustace, who's been totally, perfectly beastly, um, finds himself transformed into a dragon. And it's that transformation into the dragon, the suffering that that brings about in his life that causes him to repent of his beastliness. And um, he's just weeping. And he desires, he, he scorned the fellowship of his companions. And then all he wants is a kind word from the little mouse, Reepy Jeep. All he wants is a kind word, and they are kind to him. And it's in that kindness to him and his own um, humility brings in suffering brings about his repentance. And there is a kind of baptism. He has uh, he's woken up by Aslan, and he goes to this um, pool, and Aslan says you must bathe, and he says, well, uh, I, how, you know, and then Aslan says you must undress first. So he tries to scratch off his dragon skins and he peels off one layer and it goes on the floor. He peels off another layer and it goes on the floor and it's not enough. He still is not clean enough to get into the pool. And um, Aslan says, let me, uh, let me do it. Only I can do it. 
essentially. And Aslan scratches that dragon's skin. And he talks about the painfulness of that, of um, Aslan, the Christ figure, looking at us. He, and I think this is an image for Jesus in his holiness, us being, you know, being confronted by the holiness of Jesus Christ, being completely humbled by his righteousness and saying, do what you will with me being humbled before the foot of the cross and allowing God through that to transform us. And it's that, that transformation that we see in Eustace. Suddenly, through that painful interaction, the skin um, comes off finally, and he can bathe and be baptized in that water. Interestingly enough, um, Edmund the traitor greets him almost as a welcoming into the community of the redeemed. So that is the voyage of the dawn treader. There are the Duffelpuds. They journey to the end of the world, and there they meet Aslan on the beach. It's just like John 21. I'm not going to tell you any more about it, but you can read it and remember it. The silver chair finds Eustace now drawn back into Narnia with his school friend Jill, Jill Pole, who also has an unfortunate name. And um, she fails on and on and on. Um, the, and it's wonderful because Aslan redeems the entire situation. So it's a great re reminder that um, though we are given these commandments by Christ as Christians, we fail to keep them consistently. Um, and yet God is in control and he can make up for our lack and our failure. I mean, you see that all works out in the end. There's something very calming and peaceful about that. There's another scene of temptation where um, the children from our land and Rillian, who they've, they're trying to rescue, are being tempted by this green witch in the underworld. She turns into a drag. well, she turns into a dragon, but as they're tempted, she's playing on her harp, and they're tempted to believe that the overworld does not exist, that Aslan does not exist. Um, and this very down-to-earth Marsh Wiggle comes forward and just stamps in the fire that has been clogging their brains, and, um, and they're free from this temptation. There's that sense in which sometimes we need an external intervention <laughs> to be able to resist temptation. Um, the horse and his boy is another great one. Um, I'm just going to say there's one scene where this escaped slave is fleeing along with his talking horse from Narnia. And he's, of course, met up with Erebus, of, um, who is from the southern kingdom. And, they are, um, and she has escaped a bad marriage, and she is uh, or the prospect of a bad marriage. Her horse turns out to be a talking horse, too. So, um, and they're traveling north, and on this one road north, there is a lion that's chasing them, chasing them across this plain as they're trying to reach Archenland to save it from the invading armies of the south. And there's this great picture of, it's, it's horrible and great at the same time because there's the suffering in there. They're being chased by this lion, and Erebus even um, gets scratched by the lion, and she suffers. Um, she's in pain. And um, the horses are dead tired by the time they get there. They didn't think they could go on any further. And Aslan later on explains his actions to the boy, Shasta, and says that he knew that um, they needed that spurring on from him. Otherwise, they never would have gone on to do the great things that they did. That the boy needed that chase from the lion. I think that's an interesting picture of some of the things in our life that we don't understand, um, especially in the moment. We don't know why God puts them there. We know that he's sovereign and he's in charge and we have to ask him, why is this going on? Sometimes we might not find out until um, we meet him face to face. And sometimes he gives us wisdom as we reflect on our lives years down the road. Um, but he, 
he has this great gift where Aslan just tells him face to face, you needed me to do this so that you would do this great thing. Um, finally, the magician's nephew is um, as uh, the second to last book, and it deals with the creation of Narnia. And into Narnia, this newly created land, comes um, both Diggory and Polly, who have been sent there by their uncle, who is too too cowardly to go himself, and they accidentally draw in um, the witch um, from Charn, and you see the origin of the white witch, um, and they, they end up in Narnia, this new land that is just being created, and you see this wonderful picture of um, this imaginative um, creation ex nihilo, which is the Latin for, you know, out of nothing, which is how God created our universe. And you see Aslan, who is the Christ figure there, you know, and we know in Genesis that it is by the word of God that all creation was made. And there you see Aslan, like the word himself, singing into creation, um, everything that he imagines. You hear the song, and then you hear some, you see something appear that that looks the way the song sounded. Um, and it's just a beautiful, gorgeous picture. Um, and you see that temptation enters in there too. Diggory succumbed to temptation in the hall of Charn. When he took the hammer, he pinches his friend Polly, holds her arm back so she can't prevent him. And he rings the gong that wakes up the evil witch. Um, and it's that he succumbs to that temptation of curiosity. And in his sin, he hurts Polly. And when they then end up in Narnia, he receives forgiveness from Aslan. And it's amazing that after meeting Aslan, you see a later temptation scene in the book where he has gone to pluck an apple from the tree of life to bring back to Aslan at his command. There he meets the witch. And she has wiped, she's wiping away the juice of an apple she's just eaten from her mouth. And she tells him not to take the apple back to Aslan, but rather to take it back for his mother. And he's thinking it through, he's struggling, and he doesn't know what to do. But um, I would venture to say that the reason why he's successful in the face of temptation there is because it's post-conversion. There's that sense in which Aslan is fighting for him. He is now, his whole world has shifted with Aslan at the center. Um, so it's a picture of us post-creation. We don't always see that freedom to withstand temptation, and yet it's there at times, and we need to celebrate it. Finally, the last, oh, here he is. The flying horse is carrying him away. The last battle is the last of Tolkien's books, and it is, as many biographers say, it is the most glorious. It's horrible in the first like nine chapters because it's it's Narnia when all has gone wrong, and in that Narnia where all goes wrong, um, Lewis is portraying um, that prophecy um, from Jesus in the Gospels. Uh, the apocalyptic, what he prophesies will happen at the end of our world. And Jesus says, um, then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. The blasphemy in this story is that you see an ape convincing, manipulating, really, um, rather innocent and um, kind of not so smart donkey into putting on a lion skin and pretending to be lion the uh, the lion Aslan so that the ape can have his will uh, his way in Narnia and become a dictator 
And so the ape is a kind of antichrist. And they draw all the Narnians around the stable where they bring out puzzled, show, um, show them all. This is Aslan, but they haven't seen Aslan. So they believe that this sorry-looking donkey in a lion skin is Aslan. And what a great image for the antichrist, this idea of a shabby-looking, meant to be somewhat like, but it's actually um, such a, um, a horrible image of... Uh, um, uh, I'm missing a word, but it's horribly unlike and yet somewhat enough like that it's um, disturbing. So um, we see that this book climaxes with the destruction of the world of Narnia and the final judgment. And um, there is there is even a, the god Tash comes out and starts eating up people. It's horrifying. And then... Um, then what happens, there's this final judgment. Aslan stands at the door to the stable, and it turns out, as one of the characters, Jill, says that uh, the stable is much bigger on the inside than it is on the outside, that it um, holds something even bigger than itself. And she says, that happened in our world once, too. Uh, there is this stable, and Aslan stands there, and the animals and every creature in Narnia comes comes to the door, faces Aslan, and they either come through the door or they go out into the darkness. What a picture of the final judgment that we see told about in Scripture. And then, as those who have come in, well, then Narnia is destroyed, and it's very sad. You see the stars come down, and it's destroyed with fire and ice, and the door is shut. And then the adventure begins. And um, we see in uh, the image of heaven that um, Lewis has this view of heaven as um, the reality with a capital R of which our world is just a copy. And one of his biographers points to this story that he tells elsewhere of a boy born in prison with his mother. And his mother has told him what the outside world is like. And the way she's told him is by drawing pictures with a lead pencil. Um, and on the whole, the boy gets on tolerably well until one day he says something that gives his mother pause. For a minute or two, they are at cross purposes. Finally, it dawns on her that he has, all these years, lived under a misconception. But she gasps. You didn't think that the real world was full of lines drawn in lead pencil. What, says the boy? No pencil marks there? And instantly, his whole notion of the other world becomes a blank. We see, but in a glass, darkly, as St. Paul says. And our understanding of what is truly real and truly important in this world is so um, even fallen with our own fallenness that we must look to Scripture to find out what is truly real with a capital R. And that is what Lewis believed. And so when he describes heaven, when he describes this new Narnia, he says that, um, that the old Narnia was not the real Narnia. That had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and always will be here, just as our own world, England and all, is only a shadow or a copy of something in Aslan's real world. Another way of describing heaven is as, um, let's go to this one, as a home. And one of the characters says when, she, when he sees the um, heaven out, uh, inside the stable. I've come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Come further up, come further in. 
The new Narnia inside the stable is the perfect Narnia, the real Narnia. And they find all those familiar places that they loved and they have a reunion with their favorite friends, their deepest relationships. Um, and Aslan's last words are to say, the term is over, the holidays have begun, the dream is ended, this is the morning. And um, after he says that, the narrator, Lewis, goes on to say, all their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. What a great last paragraph to not just a book, but a series of seven books that have delighted the imagination of the reader to liken heaven to a good book that never ends and whose chapters just continue to get better and better and better. What a sense of further up and further in. Um, Lewis describes why fairy tales work. He talks about fairy tales stealing past the watchful dragons of what we are told to think and told to believe um, through church in a good way. We're told what to think and what to believe. But he says, I saw how stories of this kind could steal past a certain inhibition which had paralyzed much of my own religion in childhood. Why did one find it so hard to feel as was one was told one ought to feel about God or about the sufferings of Christ? I thought the chief reason was that one was told one ought to. An obligation to feel can freeze feelings and reverence itself did harm. The whole subject was associated with lowered voices, almost as if it were something medical. But supposing that by casting all these things into an imaginary world, stripping them of their stained glass and Sunday school associations, one could make them, for the first time, appear in their real potency. Could one not thus steal past those watchful dragons? I thought one could. How wonderful to steal past the watchful dragons and to steal past our own stubborn wills, our own stubborn refusal to believe what we know is true um, when it's put forward to us in very rational and um, ways that we're used to hearing. And he puts them forward in such uh, imaginative ways that they sneak in the back door and suddenly we find we believe in places where we never believed before. So, any questions about this? I have one more minute. So if you don't have a question, I'm going to geek out for a moment. You want me to geek out? <laughs> okay, so the, they say, okay, this is the first order of the books. And um, that's the original order in which they were written. Lewis wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe first. And there's a reason why the movie producers of the most recent series have done that one first. Well, the current holders of the estate of Lewis have um, allowed there to be only one universal publisher worldwide. And so that universal publisher has done a new order, which one of Lewis's biographers and a man on the estate has said this was the order that Lewis thought they should be read in chronologically. And he references a letter to a young boy, Lawrence Creek, which is in that book, um, about why this would be the chronological order in which to read them. Don't read them this way. And here's why. <laughs> because you won't, and don't read them to your children this way. Read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe first, because in there you're drawn into the mystery of Narnia. You're drawn into the wonder and the awe of the lion who is Aslan, who is in fact Jesus Christ. And you see that with that old order, and here's my last little parting thought, 
at that with that old order you have first and foremost the conversion of the heart through faith in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ as the theological gem and for us as Christians isn't that um, the beginning for us it's at the very center of our story it's at the very center of scripture of the biblical history you know we would put Genesis Revelation in the in the middle then we would put um, the Gospels but in fact the revelation of God through Jesus Christ that revelation that we are forgiven through his death and that we are raised to new life through his resurrection that is the centerpiece of our faith so that comes first so on that note go in peace